Hello and welcome to the Daily Texan Newscast. I'm Zeke Fritz. And I'm JT Lindsay. It's October 20th, 2017, and here's what's been happening on campus. Almost all of the bricks laid for the Speedway Mall project thus far will have to be ripped up and repaved because they do not meet strength requirements, creating additional construction in the area until March. All of the bricks installed from the southern end of the project near Jester Circle to the most recent installations near 24th Street will need to be removed and replaced due to some cracking, said Jim Shackleford, director for UT's Capital Planning and Construction. About half of the currently laid bricks were not up to the strength standards requested by the university, Shackleford said. The project team first noticed cracks in some of the bricks earlier this summer, but it was not until Tuesday that the manufacturer agreed to provide the new bricks and labor for repaving them at no cost to UT. As the replacement process takes place, narrow portions of the street will be blocked to student traffic at a time, beginning with the area south of 21st Street, Shackleford said. The entirety of the replacement process will last until March and is expected to begin next week. There will be some disruption to the traffic on Speedway. There will be an impact because the street will be narrowed by 50% while this replacement is going on, Shackleford said. Because the manufacturer will provide the needed labor for replacing the bricks south of 24th Street, Shackleford said all current construction crew will continue work on the project as planned, causing no further delay. The project is due to be completed next April, and so this will be done with crews that are not working on the current scope of work. We don't expect there to be any impact on the schedule at all, Shackleford said. Work on getting the replacement started is already underway. Near the Blanton Museum on Wednesday morning, a crew began testing a method of removing the insufficient bricks and installed a mock-up to be approved by a project architect. After their approval, Shackleford said he expects the replacement process to start next week. Brick installation north of 24th Street was completed with new, tested bricks and will not need to be redone, said Lori Lentz, communications manager for Financial and Administrative Services. She said the project team ordered replacement bricks that do meet the university's strength requirement after realizing issues with the older ones and began using them immediately. At a certain point in the process, a problem was detected and the bricks that were up to standard were then delivered for work that took place, Lentz said. Construction for the $36 million project began in May of 2016 and is projected to be finalized in April. Citing anti-Israel bias, the Trump administration announced last week its decision to withdraw from the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization at the end of 2018. Art History Associate Professor Stephanie Mulder said regardless of its issues, such as sometimes being overly political, the work UNESCO does is too important to abandon. Despite some of the problems of UNESCO, it's an organization that really does important work, Mulder said. It's really the only organization that can coordinate international work to preserve cultural heritage sites around the world. UNESCO was first established in the 1940s to promote and preserve international education, communication, and culture. The organization came under fire recently for criticizing Israeli occupation of the West Bank, a hotly contested area being fought over by Palestinians and the Israeli government. One role of UNESCO is designating world heritage sites, important cultural or historical areas. Within the West Bank, there's one World Heritage Site called Hevron that houses shrines to the biblical figure Abraham and his wife. Mulder said Hevron is revered by all three major monotheistic religions, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity, but that the Israeli government is preventing Palestinians from accessing the area. UNESCO condemned Israel's actions in the area in a resolution passed in July. UNESCO deplores the ongoing Israeli excavations, works, construction of private roads for settlers, and of a wall inside the old city of Hebron which are illegal under international law and harmfully affect the authenticity and integrity of the site, and the subsequent denial of freedom of movement and freedom of access to places of worship, the resolution said. 
Rachel Mitchell, president of the student group Texans for Israel, said her organization represents a wide variety of opinions on the issues regarding Israel and Palestine, but as a whole, they want to reduce anti-Israel bias within the UN. As an organization, we do look to the international community to address pretty blatant anti-Israel bias at the UN, Mitchell said. We're hoping that the body will work toward a solution that is very desperately needed. Over two decades ago, the U.S. government passed a law barring funding to any United Nations organization that accepts Palestine as a member. In 2011, when UNESCO accepted Palestine as a member, the U.S. immediately stopped providing funding and now owes $550 million to the organization. Mulder said the U.S. will lose much of its soft power diplomatic achievements that the U.S. can use to boost its reputation and influence other countries. Mulder calls it a tremendous lost opportunity. It's a way for the U.S. to be visible doing good around the world, Mulder said. If a U.S. team sponsored by UNESCO comes to your country and starts to assist in rebuilding monuments, that's very good for the local country. It's also good for the U.S.'s reputation. State Department Representative Heather Nauert announced the decision regarding UNESCO but said it was not set in stone. If UNESCO wants to get back and wants to reform itself and get back to a place where they're truly promoting culture and education and all of that, perhaps we could take another look at this. But we haven't seen that taking place, Nauert said. UT Austin is one of the only large public universities in Texas that charges for counseling and mental health services. Of Texas's 10 largest public universities, only UT and the University of Houston charge for counseling sessions. The University of Houston charges $5 for individual counseling compared to UT's $10 per individual counseling session. Other major Texas universities, including Texas A&M University and Texas State University, provide free care included in tuition. The Counseling and Mental Health Center, or CMHC, first started charging for counseling in 2010 when the university was going through heavy budget cuts, this said center director Chris Brownson. In the past six years, the center has seen a 53% increase in student interest and an 81% increase in the number of counseling sessions provided, Brownson said. Brownson said it is the variety and quality of mental health services offered to students through a large counseling staff that requires a fee for counseling sessions. He said UT has one of the highest clinician-to-student ratios in the state of Texas. We have a lot of counselors, Brownson said. We have a lot of different types of services, but as you can imagine, in order to be able to do that, there is a cost. So that is part of why there is a charge here. The center does not require payment immediately and will lift any counseling-related financial bars at time of registration, Brownson said. One of the things that is very important to me as the director is that we are not erecting barriers to students seeking care for mental health services, Brownson said. We will work with students for any kind of payment plan that works for them. Although time and mode of payment is negotiable, the $10 fee is not. For students like bilingual education junior Lord Ventura Rubio, the fee could be the deciding factor on whether they seek treatment or not. Ventura Rubio sought counseling at UT last fall, but discontinued it after one session because she felt like she could no longer afford regular visits. I was helping with my mother's bills. I was paying my own bills, and those $10 did make the difference, Ventura Rubio said. With all of the money that we're obviously paying with tuition, there should be some type of fund for students who are in need of counseling. The CMHC offers some free services like group counseling, classes, and workshops and a 24-7 crisis line. Marketing senior Ying Jin Su works as a peer educator for the center. She said that although the center does not have enough counselors to provide regular service to all of UT's 51,000 students, they can still reach out for support with the free services. It's more about building the connection on campus, Zhu said. I think it's more about how we can help students to build the strategies to help themselves. Ventura Rubio said she thinks mental health issues are often downplayed even though it can happen to anybody for any reason. This is something that the students want and are willing to vouch for, Ventura Rubio said, and hopefully more people who are going through things who are having difficulties will step forward and get the help that they need. The Austin Police Department is rolling out body cameras to officers this week, APD Chief Brian Manley said in a Friday announcement. 
The community is going to get what it has long desired, which is to view police activity, Manley said in a Friday press conference. It is a good tool for APD to have as well, so we know not only what we are doing is appropriate, but that it is working as far as training, techniques, and tactics go. APD purchased 736 Axon body cameras through federal and state grants. The first 198 cameras will be rolled out to officers serving APD's East substation this week, Manley said. APD was set to roll them out at the end of 2015, but a lawsuit concerning bidding practices from the camera contractors delayed implementation. The officers are already receiving the training necessary to operate the cameras, Manley said at the press conference. It's not the end-all be-all, but this is something we've wanted for quite some time. APD is one of the last major city police departments in Texas to give body cameras to their officers. One of the reasons we waited so long to start the camera program here in Austin is we wanted to make sure we have a program that works for us, Manley told the Daily Texan. We wanted the cameras to be like our in-car ones that turned on when triggered, so officers wouldn't have to make the choice whether or not to turn the camera on. Over the past few years, APD has set up a seven-page policy manual which outlines rules for officers using body cameras, Manley said. These rules include when the devices should be used or not, where the body camera will be worn, how long video is stored, and how public information requests for the videos are handled. The cameras automatically turn on and begin recording when the officer opens the car door, Manley said. We are training officers to turn on the cameras manually as well so they build muscle memory. Officers will also have to inform people they interact with that they are being recorded unless doing so would make the encounter less safe. Brent Dupree, commander of the APD's technology division, said the cameras are easy to use and have a series of indicators on them that let officers know if it's on and functioning properly. Officers will be in charge of their camera and its maintenance, Dupree said. We are very proud of the equipment and how long the battery life lasts. APD will be cooperating with the open records retention laws in regarding to keeping camera footage, Manley said. The department will allow 181 days after a video is recorded before it is deleted. The second round of rollouts is scheduled for November 4th, with 234 cameras going to officers at APD's main headquarters. The third round will start on December 4th, with officers at APD's South Substation receiving 228 cameras. Sociology junior Zainab Sakir said she hopes the body cameras help the community and police department build a better relationship with each other. These body cameras give the public the ability to look inside what an officer is doing, Sakir said. It will also keep them on their best behavior when interacting with us. The UT Police Department made a driving while intoxicated arrest on October 2nd that led to the capture of suspected serial robber Sean O'Brien on October 7th. O'Brien is currently in the Travis County Jail and is charged with four counts of aggravated robbery. During these robberies, a masked man holding an ignited Roman candle and hammer demanded money from gas stations, according to KXAN. The first robbery took place at a Shell gas station at 7510 North Mopac Expressway on September 27th. The second incident occurred two days later at the 7-Eleven at 3848 Airport Boulevard. On October 1st, two 7-Eleven stores were robbed, one at 9200 Burnett Road and the other at the 7-Eleven on the 6100 block of Bee Cave Road, KXAN reported. The Austin Police Department received an anonymous tip on October 5th that named O'Brien as the robber. After looking up his name, APD found that O'Brien had been arrested by UTPD three days earlier for a DWI. UTPD then provided footage of the arrest that showed a mask and gloves in O'Brien's car. There is almost always information sharing when a case involves overlapping jurisdictions, said Tara Long, APD's public information specialist. We, as law enforcement agencies, would need to maximize resources. Long said APD also worked with the Lone Star Fugitive Task Force to locate O'Brien at Lockhart, where he was taken into custody by the Lockhart Police Department on October 7th. There were multiple forces involved in this case, Long said. When it is appropriate, APD will ask UTPD for information that the latter might have. 
It is not uncommon, especially in West Campus. UTPD said Lieutenant Greg Stevenson said that although APD cannot directly access UTPD records and vice versa, information sharing can be as simple as a phone call or casual conversation. When police departments work together, there involves a document called Memorandum of Understanding, Stevenson said. It outlines the general acknowledgement that we will cooperate back and forth if we are crossing each other's primary jurisdiction. I can't even imagine when UTPD would ever refuse to give APD something they need. Both former police chief Robert Dalestrom and current police chief David Carter served as chief of staff at APD before joining UTPD. Stevenson said their leadership roles have helped improve the relationship between APD and UTPD. We work really well with all the agencies around here, and APD is probably the most prominent, Stevenson said. We know the officers by name. Patrol units know each other on the street level. They trade cell phone numbers and walk back and forth on a daily basis. That cooperation moves all the way through the department up to Chief Carter. Stevenson said the resolution of the O'Brien case is indicative of the cooperation between UTPD and surrounding agencies. It's not a competitive thing, Stevenson said. It's all about accomplishing the overall mission of getting everyone safe. Together, we got a serial robber put away. Students from small towns shared their experiences, such as struggling to break into existing social networks at UT, feeling unprepared for college, and wanting to return home at the Liberal Arts Council's first focus group of the semester on Wednesday evening. Emily Frazier, a linguistics and Spanish sophomore from Waco, Texas, said during the discussion that it's harder to get in touch with people in a big city like Austin. It's very easy to feel drawn back to going home a lot, especially if a lot of your friends from high school stayed in your hometown, Frazier said. Some of my friends are going to Baylor, some of them are going to community college there, and I have guaranteed time to hang out with friends there. Over here, people are usually busy and they don't live near each other. Ishana Talasara, co-chair of the LAC College Ambassadors Committee, said the Liberal Arts Council wants to use focus groups to hear stories from the different students and get ideas of ways the council can work to improve the college experience. The people who ran my committee before me realized that LAC tries to advocate on behalf of students. But there's a lot of groups we don't reach because none of us are a part of those groups, said Talasara, an economics and math junior. We want to not just send out surveys by email. We wanted to actually hear people's stories and the ideas that they have. Michael Sanchez, a Plan 2 and History junior from Brownsville, Texas, said it would be helpful to have a program where older college students provide prospective UT students from small-town high schools with connections. I'm personally trying to do that right now with students from my high school who are here and saying, hey, I know this person, and making introductions that are necessary, Sanchez said. You can't just expect everyone to go out there and put themselves in social situations where a lot of people know each other and they come from the same area. Emma Giacomello, an anthropology sophomore from Huntsville, Texas, said she did not feel prepared for college because her school did not offer the same resources as other schools. I heard about the classes other kids took in high school and the organizations they were in, and we didn't have those, Giacomello said. You feel less prepared for college because you're like, these kids did way more than I did in high school. McCombs Interdisciplinary Social Innovation Initiative was officially launched this semester. Through the initiative, we hope to harness the students' passion and UT's world-class resources to develop effective leaders who can drive positive social and environmental change while creating economic value for their organizations, Dr. Laura Stark, former interim dean of the McCombs School of Business, said in a press release. Launched by Stark and Dr. Stephen Lindbergh, associate dean for graduate programs at McCombs, the initiative focuses on four specific components. Corporate and social innovation, environmental, social, and governmental investing, social on 
entrepreneurship and public and social sector innovation, which take shape through various academic courses, research opportunities, career guidance, and experiential learning. How do we start to build the knowledge among these students and among faculty and staff and practitioners and others in the community to do all of this in a more impactful way, a way that reaches some permanent solutions to some of our very deep-rooted issues? That's the goal to take that passion and to provide that knowledge to bridge to real solutions. That was Dr. Mita Kotare, Managing Director of the Social Innovation Initiative. She said that the initiative is in its startup stage right now. So far, projects and events are small, with an upcoming speaker-led discussion series and a handful of course offerings, but Kotare is making connections with organizations outside of McCombs, as well as the mayor's office and businesses within the Austin community so they can expand their outreach in the future. What we are trying to do early on is to create as broad an impact as possible. So if students just hear about it, even if they come to some of these conversations, they're understanding more and more about how the social innovation space is working. While Kotari and her 22-member staff lead the initiative, she said that the life of the project is spawned by the students, who have already approached her with research and project ideas and are more enthusiastic than ever about socially conscious business practices. When you think about an entire generation that wants to work for or invest in or buy from companies that are taking care of the environment, taking care of society while being profitable, then business schools have to adapt and ask what's going on and how do we serve these students well. Business freshman Jane Andrews first learned about the initiative through her freshman interest group and said she is interested in becoming part of the initiative, especially due to its focus on environmental sustainability. I think that a lot of people think that businesses are more focused on, you know, just making a profit, typical like Wall Street stereotype and all that. But it's just kind of enforcing that being a business, having a business gives you the responsibility of also giving back to the community. McCombs is just another addition to the list of business schools around the country, increasing their involvement with integrating the public, private and nonprofit sectors of business. Kotari said the initiative is part of a widespread movement to reignite a trend that businesses have strayed away from in recent decades. When you look back at the history of economics, the history of business, businesses took care of many of these things in the long gone past. Maybe not perfectly, but there was an attitude towards taking care of the community in which they were located, taking care of their employees. For The Daily Texan, I'm Sarah Schleed. That's it for this week's edition of the Daily Texan Newscast. You can always find more news at dailytexanonline.com. You can also find the Daily Texan on Twitter, at the Daily Texan, and this and our other podcasts, at Texan Podcasts. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. Just search for the Daily Texan. Be sure to tune in next week. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.